By way of getting us started this morning and to just get you to think about something, I want to begin with asking a simple question. That question is this, are we alone? I don't mean just, you know, are we alone sitting in this room together? That's not what I mean. Or nor do I mean, are we alone existentially? Do you feel alone, lonely in your neighborhood? That's not what I mean. Are we alone in our neighborhoods or communities? I mean much more grander than that. Are we alone? I'm asking the question in the way our society has been asking that question as of the last few decades. Are human beings, are we like orphans that are just stranded on a lonely speck of a planet in this vast expanse of an ever-increasing universe? Was Carl Sagan correct when he said that we are all on this pale blue dot alone on this planet called Earth? Is Macbeth correct when he asks, is life but a walking shadow? a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. As a society, we desperately don't want that answer to be true. Since 1974, we have spent millions and millions of dollars listening for any voice, any sound, any message out there that tells us we're not alone down here. The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, it's an organization that has hundreds and hundreds of these satellite radio dishes pointed to the stars, listening, just listening for any kind of communication. They've been doing this on our behalf as a planet, as a species, to answer the question, are we alone? Every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year for the last 44 years they have been listening. For the past 385,440 hours nonstop listening to see and answer the question, are we alone? But as science writer and astronomer David Hughes says, today, however, we are still experiencing the pangs of cosmic loneliness. Never mind not coming for a visit, no extraterrestrial being has even left a calling card or shouted to us from a distance. See, this is just another point at which the Christian worldview both radically affirms and yet challenges one of the cultural narratives of our day. The Christian worldview boldly proclaims, we are not alone. We are not alone. And while SETI has yet to pick up any voice or message from the stars, the Bible proclaims loudly that we have had a message from the heavens more compelling than any galactic radiostatic transmission from any solar system could ever be. The epistle to the Hebrews says in the first chapter, verse 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, He has spoken to us by His Son. We are not orphans in an empty universe. To quote Francis Schaeffer in his book, He is there and He is not silent. The cosmos in which we live is not silent because the Creator who made it all has spoken loudly and clearly. And this morning, as we continue to think about the gospel, it follows necessarily that if the gospel originates in God and yet we have the gospel then it stands to reason that somehow He has communicated this message to us. So this morning we want to think about that. 
And like every other message in this series, we are only going to scratch the surface on these topics, a topic like the Bible, which has literally birthed hundreds of books, thousands of news articles, launched and sustained I don't know how many academic careers, and even has its own museum, nearly a million square feet large, right in two blocks south, uh, three blocks south of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., the Museum of the Bible. Um, so, while there's so much more to be said on it, the 30 or 40 minutes we talk about this morning is just a, a trailer to a much larger movie. Now, I'm going to make three statements this morning. One is a claim, one is evidence, and one is the message. The claim is God has spoken. And then I'm going to offer evidence how we can have confidence that God has indeed spoken. And then what was the message that God has spoken in the Bible? And that is the gospel. So let's look at the first one. God has spoken, the claim itself. Uh, Friends, one of the first things we learn about God is that He is a God who speaks. He is a God who reveals Himself. In the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, ten times the phrase is recorded, God said. God has been speaking from the beginning, and He continues to speak to us now, as Hebrews says, through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and final revelation of God Himself. In John chapter 14, we talked a little bit about John's gospel last week, Jesus connects His words with God's words and God's work. In John chapter 14, verse 9 and 10, it will be on the screen behind me as well. Jesus is speaking to His disciples. He says to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His work. Furthermore, in the 20th chapter of this book, verses 30 and 31, John says, these things have all been collected and written down that you might believe in Jesus and by believing in Jesus have eternal life. The claim is that God has spoken. And without doubt, friends, this is one of the most radical claims Christianity makes in our culture today. If you are a Christian and that reality just doesn't blow your mind, you've been a Christian too long that God has spoken to us. You see, you talk to somebody who didn't grow up in a church or have any kind of Christian background, and you tell them God has spoken to us, God has spoken to us as a, as a race, God has given us His message, and they'll look at you like you're crazy. What do you mean God has spoken? That just sounds so bizarre. But if you believe And according to surveys, the majority of Americans do believe, whether or not they are a Christian, they do believe that God is a personal God. God is not some odd, ambiguous kind of Eastern entity, more like the Force. Sorry, Star Wars fans. Uh, But He's actually a personal being. Then it's reasonable to expect that if He's a personal being, that He's going to communicate to other personal beings as well. So, while at face value it may seem crazy that we believe God has spoken, when you actually stop to think about it, if you believe God is personal, then God speaking to us does not seem that irrational. As a matter of fact, it's kind of expected. One of the most influential thinkers and theologians of the 20th century, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, apparently also Barack Obama, former President Obama, is one of his favorite theologians, said this in his book, The Nature and Destiny of Man. Man cannot know himself fully except with knowledge outside of himself. 
Mankind needs a word from the outside. That's absolutely right. You see, without God's revelation about Himself to humanity, all we have is speculation. Without God revealing who He is, what He's about, what His plans and purposes are, all we have is speculation about Him. And so God must communicate. That is exactly why He has spoken, because without His voice, humanity is doomed to spend its existence listening for voices that either don't exist or likely listening to voices that will lead us astray. So that's the claim. The Bible says God has spoken. But the question is, how do we know that God has spoken in the Bible? How do you know, in fact, that that's where He's spoken? Because what we're saying is we know God has spoken, and when someone says, well, how do you know that? We say because in the Bible it says He's spoken. Now, if we're going to be honest, that sounds a little fast and loose. Okay, so you're saying you know God has spoken authoritatively because the Bible says God has spoken authoritatively. Now, you know what you call that, right? That's called a line of circular reasoning. And it's an honest question for someone to raise, and as Christians, we have to learn to think about that, because if the claim is, we know God has spoken authoritatively because the Bible says He's spoken authoritatively, there seems to be a problem with that. For those who don't know what circular reasoning, basically, it's when you assume the answer in one of your premises or your, pro- your propositions. So, for example, I'm at Irvine Spectrum, and I'm hanging out there, and there's Nick from our praise team walking around the Ferris wheel, snapping his fingers and whistling, and I look at him, he's doing this for, you know, 10 minutes, and I go, what the heck are you doing, Nick? Um, And he says, oh, I'm I'm whistling and snapping my fingers and walking around the Ferris wheel because it keeps all the elephants away. And I go, Nick, there's no elephants here, it's Irvine Spectrum, and he says, see, it works. Okay, get back to it. See, that's circular reasoning, Right? (laughs) So to say that we know God authoritatively has spoken in His Word because the Bible says so, it seems like it's the same kind of circular reasoning. But here's the thing. Any claim to a kind of final authority, any claim that says this is, this is it, this is what it means, is by necessity circular reasoning. You can't get away from that. It's not just a problem for Christians and the Bible. It's a problem for everybody. So someone says, Rick, you can't say that. That's circular reasoning. You're saying that the Bible's authoritative because the Bible says it's authoritative. That, that's not true. That's, that's, not, that, that's circular reasoning. I said, well, well, what is the final authority then? Well, reason. Well, why is reason the final authority? Because it's, it's reasonable that reason's the final authority. Or, or it's logic that's the final authority. Well, why is logic the final authority? Because it's logical. You see, you get into the same problem. Any claim of final authority by necessity has to be its own validation. Because if you have to go to something else to prove that and establish it as the final authority, guess what's the final authority? That thing you have to appeal to. So the fact that as Christians we say we know God has spoken because the Bible says God has spoken may seem like circular reasoning, but any claim to a final authority is by definition circular reasoning. It's not just a problem of Christians. Whether it's reason or logic or your own experience, whatever you're using to justify how you know things is its final authority. Which is why, by the way, when we have competing truth claims in the religious world, which is why evidence can be important. Because anyone can claim to be the final authority, but do we have evidence to back up if it's a reasonable claim? And that's why our second point is so important. God has spoken in the Bible, and here's the evidence. What I want to do now, because 
I was talking to first service people, you're just going to get a tidal wave of information soon, so give us a little heads up. What I'm not anticipating or expecting you to do is to write furiously all the information down I got and then use it the next time you talk to somebody about the Bible. That's not my intention. My intention, I, I want to give you an acronym, something that you can kind of hang your hat on to help you think through the issue of how the Bible is unlike anything else in this world, thus justifying our claim that is God has spoken in it. So that I want to give you, I'll give you that in a little bit, but what I also want to do is give you evidence that back that up, not so that you can bust this out really quick, but so that you can have a confidence and a realization that the Bible is a dynamic book unlike anything this world has ever seen or ever will know, okay? So the first thing I want to give you is the, the acronym that you should all have in the back of your Bibles, uh, if not in words, certainly in picture. What's that at the very back of our Bibles? Maps. So that's the acronym. The acronym stands for, are you ready, Manuscript Evidence, Archaeological Discoveries, Predictive Prophecy, and Statistical Probability. Okay, I'm going to go through one at a time. So what's the evidence? When we say God has spoken, that's the claim, and it is the final authority. What's the evidence that we have that helps us believe that with confidence? Let's talk about just from a, a purely and I'm thinking of having this conversation with someone who doesn't accept the Bible necessarily as a religious book. Let's talk about the manuscripts. So on the sides behind me, I have listed on the far left column, if you've gone to college or done any literature or literary reading, these are undisputed texts of history that, that no one denounces or no one disbelieves. So we have Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars, and Tacitus. The column next to that is the number of manuscripts, copies, that we have in existence of those documents. So, for example, of Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have a total of 10 of those. The next column is when they were written. So, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, about 50, 58 B.C., right? The next column says earliest MSS, means earliest manuscript, is the earliest copy that we have a copy of. So, in the case of, let's say, um, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, it was written in 50 or 58 B.C., but the earliest copy we have is dated to 850 A.D., okay? And then the last column, you can figure it out. That means from when it was written to the copy we have, 900 years have elapsed, okay? So, does everybody understand how this table looks? So, what that's saying is, of Homer's Iliad, nobody doubts Homer's Iliad was written, it's, 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 it's what it is. We've got 643 manuscripts, it was written 900 B.C., the earliest copy we have is going to 400 B.C., so there's a 500-year gap between those two. Let's look at the next slide. We have Suetonius's 12 Caesars, and then look at the New Testament and Old Testament. It dwarfs any other document we have of antiquity. The New Testament has, this is a conservative figure, 14,000 manuscript, manuscript fragments. The Old Testament has more than 9,000. Now look at the New Testament, the date of origin. The New Testament was written roughly 50 to 96 AD between Paul and John and all those guys. The earliest copy we have, I believe, is John Ryland's fragment, dated to 117 AD. So we have copies between 90, 20 and 90 years from when they were originally written, we have the copies. Nothing in antiquity like that. Look at the Old Testament. I just want to share something with you. This is where my, my nerd nature comes out here, but this is just mind-blowing. Again, you're not, you don't have to memorize this or write this down. Up until about 1890 of the Old Testament, we had roughly 700 manuscripts. So quite a lot, but not, not 9,000. 
Uh, and in 1890, they came across something called the Cairo-Geniza cache. It's a Cairo-Egypt, obviously, Geniza was the way they kind of maintained them or kept them, and a cache is a, a stockpile. Hundreds of thousands of manuscript copies of all kinds of documents from antiquity, from, from uh, tax collection receipts, marriage contracts, to grocery lists, to books of the Bible and other religious writings that didn't make it into the Bible. Tons of stuff. From 700 manuscripts, because of the Cairo Geniza cache, we have over 9,000 copies now, okay? Humongous amount. But notice the date you see on the Old Testament, earliest manuscript, third or fourth column over, it says 10th, it says 400 B.C., 10th, 11th century A.D. So we had all these manuscripts now, and they were dated to the 10th and 11th century A.D. Then, almost 100 years later, in 1947, a young shepherd boy came across what's been called the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you may have heard about this. Another huge stockpile of manuscripts. But the great thing about these scrolls, they were dated back to 400 B.C. And they were primarily religious writings as well, and many of them copies of Old Testament books. So here's the amazing thing. The, the copies we had from the Cairo Geniza Cache that were dated 10th, 11th century A.D., they were made by the Masorites. The Masorites were Jewish scribes who copied Scripture by hand, right? There was no printing presses, all by hand. Every time they came across the name Yahweh, they would disrobe, take a bath, re-robe, write the name, and continue. And every time they came across Yahweh or the name referring to God, they did the same process over and over again. It was too holy to write His name in their dirty, filthy clothes, right? Not only that, they knew every vowel point across every line and how many vowels and consonants on every page, and if any of the counts were off by one, they threw it away and started all over again. They were, we would say OCD probably right now, right? But they were just so reverential. Here's the mind-blowing thing. Those are the Masorites. Those are the ones we have from the 10th and 11th century A.D. Let's go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have these now documents dated 4th century B.C. Here's the math. So from 10, 11th century A.D., 4th century B.C., how much time is that? About 1,400, 1,500-year difference. When they compared the Cairo Geniza cache to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the literary accuracy was between 98 and 99 percent. 1,500 years, people who never met each other and the literary accuracy was almost 100%. Does this prove that the Bible is God's Word? No. We've got to be honest here. But what does this prove? There is no document on the planet like this book. None comes even close. Homer's Iliad, 643 manuscripts. That's the closest it gets to. There is no debate amongst manuscript scholars or scroll scholars that there is not a single book, secular or religious, like the Scriptures. Okay, that's just manuscript evidence. Let's talk about the second one, archaeology. Um, if you were here when we studied 1 Samuel, do you remember we talked about 1 Samuel 13 and 14, where Jonathan and Saul were on one side of Michmash and the, the Philistines were on the other side, and then Jonathan had to go through a, 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 a crevasse or a cavern area, and he snuck up and attacked the Philistines and won? You remember the story of General Allenby in 1918 during World War I, reading his Bible, recognized that Mukmas, modern Mukmas, was ancient Michmash, 
went to his Bible and read 1 Samuel 13, 14, read the topography, sent out scouts who found the same cavern and same cliffs and used the same tactic to defeat the Turks in 1918. Amazing. But that was the, same, that was the sermon. I'm not going to dive into the details. You can look it up online. Let me show you this one here. This is called the Amarna Tablets. The Amarna Tablets are amazing because these are the recordings of vassals in the land of Cana, about 1400 B.C., and they are pleading with Pharaoh Amenhotep IV. What are they pleading about? They're pleading for help because there's apparently a nomadic, uh, what they call warlike people called the Hapirus, right, very close to Hebrews, that were systematically wiping out settlements in Cana and then repopulating one by one by one, this nomadic group was wiping out the residents of Cana in the same year that Joshua and the Canaanite conquest took place. Coincidence? I don't think so. Let me show you another one, the Taylor Prism. This is found by another uh, colonel in the British Army. Uh, the Taylor Prism, it's also known as Sennacherib's Annuals, records the siege of the Assyrian king Sennacherib against the city of Jerusalem as recorded in 2 Chronicles 32, 2 Kings 18 and 19, and Isaiah 33 to 37. Remember, this is not um, kind of Bible history, right? These are completely… Sec- this is cuneiform script, so it's not even the Hebrew or Aramaic or anything. Completely extra-biblical resources or evidences being unearthed describing the same things that took place in the Bible. Last one, Hezekiah's plaque. This is during the same siege. During when Sennacherib was outside of Israel, Hezekiah realized they needed a water source. And so they dug a tunnel from the outside of the walls of Jerusalem and on the inside of the walls of Jerusalem. And where they met in the middle, they commemorated it by putting a plaque extolling God's faithfulness to his people. And that's the plaque that they found. It's recording, talking about the same events on Sennacherib's annuals and we saw on Taylor's prism just a moment ago. This is just like three. There's hundreds of these. Does that prove the Bible is God's Word? No. It doesn't prove it. What does it prove? That the events that are recorded in this document that is attested to by tons of manuscript evidence are actual real physical events that took place, and the relics of them are literally in the sand. Any reasonable person has to be looking at this and saying, okay, well, I may not believe the Bible, but I cannot discount the overwhelming evidence that there is nothing like this recorded. So that's the A. So we have manuscript evidence, we have archaeological discoveries, and then the P stands for predictive prophecy. Uh, I think this will be on the screen, but I'd love you to go to Ezekiel chapter 26. I'm just going to share with you one prophecy uh, that, that we could repeat this hundreds of times, but one's enough, that's all the time we have for the prophecy of the prophet Ezekiel to the city of Tyre. Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 3 through 5, the prophet says this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as well. As the sea brings up its waves, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. Verse 5, She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she shall become plunder for the nations. So the prophet gives this prophecy to uh, Tyre about 580 B.C. 
Three years later, three years later, history records that Nebuchadnezzar came against the city of Tyre and laid a 13-year siege against Tyre. Well, after 13 years, Nebuchadnezzar was finally able to break through. The reality was that during the time of the siege, the, the inhabitants of Tyre, bit by bit, moved off, off the coastal shore to an island half a mile off coast and took up residence there. Really, one of the capitals or fortresses of Tyre was on this island, while the suburbs, we could say, was on the mainland. After 13 years, you can imagine how upset Nebuchadnezzar had been. He was hoping to destroy them, but they just moved a half mile off land, off into this island. His resources and men were spent. Nebuchadnezzar's army went away somewhat defeated. Yay, Tyre. But 332 B.C., Alexander the Great came along, and by this time the island had kind of become more of a fortress. He began to siege against Tyre as well. But in order to reach the, the island half a mile off coast, he needed to build a land bridge or a causeway. Guess where Alexander the Great got the materials, the sand, the gravel, and the necessary items to make the bridge? He totally raised the old city of Tyre and used all of those materials to build a causeway to reach the island and sack the city. The entire old city of Tyre was completely scraped bare and all of its materials thrown into the sea to build a land bridge so Alexander the Great could attack them. The city of Tyre, since Ezekiel's prophecy, would be seized a total of seven times by the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Turks, and finally the English. The prophecy that God gave to Tyre before any of this was, number one, many nations would rise against it, Tyre would be utterly destroyed, thrown into the sea, and become a bare rock where now fishermen spread their nets. You could multiply this a hundred times over throughout Scripture. Does this prove that the Bible is God's Word? At this point, you know, I actually don't know what to say to somebody who at this point can deny the uniqueness of this book. So that's manuscript evidence, archaeological discoveries, predictive prophecy, finally, statistical probability. When you just think, what are the odds of a book like this existing? Written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, over 1,600 years from when Moses began penning the works to when John the Apostle finished, it took 1,600 years, 40 different authors, many of which never met each other. They were kings, priests, shepherds, scholars, tax collectors. And yet, regardless of the narrative or history they record or the poetry they write, there's all one solid, consistent theme from beginning to end, and that's the gospel message. And I say, wait a minute, I, 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 I totally see that there are all these different stories. We got Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Moses, we got the Exodus, we got Joseph, I, but uh, I don't see the one overarching theme. It is the gospel message. And that is our third and last point. God has spoken the gospel in the Bible. And I want to draw your attention to two verses that are critically important if you're going to understand the Bible. And they're on the screens behind me, John 5, 39, 40, and Luke 24, 40, 27. Jesus says, oops, there we go, thank you. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And listen to what He says. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then after his resurrection, on his way to Emmaus, he walks up and talks to some disciples and says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying that the whole of the Bible's message 
is about him. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and his own disciples, and he's saying, look, from Moses and the prophets, all the scriptures, they're about me. This is so important. Unless we understand Jesus as the central point of the entire Bible, and unless we see that the gospel is the engine that drives it all, you will make a critical mistake when you read the Bible. This is the mistake. You will think that the Bible is about you. Now, you're not going to think that all of a sudden you have a God complex. Oh, it's about me. That, that's not what I mean. You will functionally read the Bible as if the whole point of the Bible was about your particular life and its situations. So you're going to look for good examples to follow, bad examples to avoid, principles to apply, and moral life lessons to build your life upon. Now, in one sense, that's not so bad. But if that's where you leave it, you will be making the same mistakes that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for in John chapter 5. You're looking for this for life, and you've missed out that it's about me. Because you fundamentally have disconnected the message of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ and made it about moral lessons and living better. And that is not what the Bible is about. From page to page and book to book, every one of them is revealing God's rescue plan of humanity from their sin to be reconciled to Him because of the work of Jesus Christ. You see, that's a completely different way of reading your Bible. It will either be about Jesus and God, or it's going to be about you and your life. And the Bible lays it out that it's about Jesus and God's plan all over the place, and in four amazing ways, uh, in prophecy, in what's called typology, in things in the Old Testament pointing things in the New, in events that take place in the Old Testament, like the great exodus to, to the event of what Jesus did leading us out of the exodus or slavery of sin to people. And I don't have time to cover them all, by, obviously, but I can just show you a glimpse of one of them, about how throughout the Bible, the people in the Bible are always pointing forward to Jesus Christ and His work. So let's start with Adam. We even sang it today that Jesus is the better Adam who passed his tests in the Garden of Gethsemane where Adam failed his tests in the Garden of Eden. And unlike Adam, Jesus imputes to us his righteousness, whereas we had Adam's unrighteousness pointed to us. Jesus is the better and true Abel. Although he was innocent, his blood was slain and it cries out to God on our behalf. Or Abraham who left his father and his home was just showing what Jesus would do when he left his father and his home in heaven. Or when Isaac carried his own wood to be a sacrifice at the hand of his father, was simply pointing forward to how Jesus would carry his own cross and lay up his life, give his life as a sacrifice by the hand of his heavenly father. You see, it's all over the place. Jesus being the, the greater Jacob who wrestled with God and, and in, in the Garden of Gethsemane and walked away limped and, and bruised, but blessed as he left the grave. Or Jesus being the greater Joseph who serves at the right hand of God the King. Remember that? And he extends forgiveness and grace to the very people who betrayed him and used his power to protect them and deliver them rather than condemn them. Or Jesus being a greater Moses in that he stands between God and man as a mediator of a better covenant. Or Jesus being like a Job who was tormented and suffered at the hands of the devil so that God would be glorified. 
while all of his dumb friends were of no encouragement or help at all. Every page you see Jesus, Jesus being a greater than King David who fought against the giants of our sin, of our death, of Satan on our behalf when everyone thought he'd be crushed by these very foes. Or Jesus being a greater Jonah who did more than spend three days in the belly of a fish. He spent three days in a grave to save a multitude much greater than Nineveh. Or do you remember when, when uh, Rahab redeemed, uh, was it no, Boaz redeemed Ruth and brought her despised people into the community of God's people. He was showing what Jesus would do to redeem his bride, the church, from all the nations of the world and redeem them to God and reconcile them into God's people. Or like when Nehemiah built the walls of Jerusalem, he was showing what Jesus would do when he rebuilt the new Jerusalem for you and I. Or when Hosea pursued an unfaithful wife, he was showing the faithfulness of Christ as he took on an unfaithful people, the church, and continues to pursue them. I mean, you get the point. Every page, every section, every character is screaming out, it's not about you, it's about Jesus and his plan to rescue us. But if we miss that, we will just look at the Bible as moral lessons rather than see it as our rescue plan or what this great God is doing. That's the gospel. If we don't see Jesus at the center of it, we're going to miss the gospel. If we miss the gospel, we miss everything what God is up to. The gospel is revealed in the Bible from page to page. And it's not about transforming us into good, moral, religious people. Although, as we focus on Christ, that change happens. But it doesn't happen because we looked at the morality. It happens because we looked at the Savior. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's on the screen. He says to them, and we all with unveiled face. What's he mean? He, Paul was comparing the Old Testament to the New, what God had done and what God is doing now in Christ. And now we can see that. It says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because we're beholding Jesus Christ in the Scriptures because we're seeing the gospel revealed in the Scriptures, and we're being transformed by that. Since I became a Christian, I have always cherished my Bibles. You may not think I cherish them by the way they look because they inevitably end up getting trashed and worn, and they're held together with duct tape and staples or whatever I can find. This is because I love it, and, and it means so much. When I first got my first Bible at 16, when I became a Christian, uh, I, I lost, I forgot who, where I got it from, but on the inside flap was taped this poem that I conclude with. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read this book to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be changed. This book contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. In this book, heaven is opened and the fires of hell are quenched. Christ is its grand subject, and our good its design. This book should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully, for this book is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life 
will be opened at the judgment and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. For this book is the word of Almighty God. This book is the Bible, and it's in the Bible where God's gospel is revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not left orphans, stranded, and alone in an ever-expanding universe where there is no one but ourselves to save us. We thank you that reality is anything but that, that we are in a universe that is crowded by your glory. Father, that we are with you in your, in your saints because of your work, because of what Jesus has done. Father, I pray that there isn't anybody in this room that leaves feeling that they are alone without hope as an orphan abandoned, that they would recognize you have spoken truth into this world, into our lives, into their lives. And that truth is they can be reconciled and redeemed with you because of the work of Jesus Christ. Father, help us not to make Christianity about us and our desires and our kingdom and our preferences but to make Christianity what it is, the rescue message for a lost and dying world. We ask that you empower us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.